Hello, this is Empires and Civilizations. Episode 2, The Life and Adventures of Muhammad. The formation of the Caliphate can be traced back to one man, Muhammad. Although the Caliphate was technically established after his death, Muhammad not only founded Islam, which was so essential to the Caliphate's affairs, but he united most of Arabia under one authority. World history would have been drastically different had Muhammad never existed. This is the story of how both a man and a religion of humble origins rose to prominence. Muhammad was born in Mecca in August 570, into a society that claimed descent from the biblical Abraham, yet still mostly practiced polytheistic idol worship. In fact, the Kaaba alone contained 360 idols, one for each day of the lunar year. Meccan society at that time was backwards and cutthroat. Knowledge of history, geography, science, and mathematics was limited. Only astronomy, which was utilized for navigating across the deserts, was adequately understood. Political affairs were governed by three famous families, the Bani Hashim, the Bani Umayyah, and the Bani Maksum. Muhammad belonged to the Bani Hashim. Drinking, gambling, and crime were rampant, women and slaves had limited rights, and few could read and write. Practices that would be viewed as vices today, such as drinking, were viewed as virtues back then. Meccan society would also be heavily influenced by commerce, both foreign and domestic. Caravans could reach faraway places such as Abyssinia, Syria, and even India and return with exotic goods. Clothing was supplied from Yemen and Syria, while the rich greatly admired Indian swords. In addition to these goods, the Meccans fulfilled their basic needs mostly through animal husbandry. After all, many of them were pastoral nomads. Muhammad's father died before Muhammad's birth, so the infant and his mother Amina had to be cared for by Muhammad's grandfather, Abdul Muttalib. When Muhammad was one year old, his mother died while traveling from Mecca and Medina and had to be buried en route. When Muhammad was eight years old, his grandfather died, and Abu Talib, the child's uncle and leader of the Bani Hashim, became his guardian, according to his grandfather's will. At the age of 12, Muhammad traveled with Abu Talib to southeastern Syria, marking the first time he left Arabia and had the opportunity to see the wider world. Besides that, however, Muhammad spent most of his time in Mecca. Muhammad distanced himself from all of the quarreling factions in Mecca, instead trying to help victims of unjust treatment. By the time Muhammad turned 25, his reputation for integrity was well known throughout Mecca. Muhammad became a man that the Meccans could trust. That kind of trust attracted a rich widow named Khadijah, who became so impressed with Muhammad that she asked Abu Talib to let Muhammad lead one of her trading caravans to Syria. Abu Talib agreed, and Muhammad's expedition was so successful that it brought unexpected profits. Khadijah believed that the success was due to Muhammad's personal qualities and started to fall in love with him. Despite coming from completely different backgrounds, Muhammad and Khadijah were married. Suddenly, Muhammad, a poor orphan, became rich. He was moving up in the world. Following her marriage, Khadijah gave Muhammad her slaves, after which Muhammad freed all but one. The remaining slave, Zayd ibn Haritha, appeared to be more intelligent and alert than the others. Zayd once belonged to a respectable family, but he was captured and sold from place to place until he ended up at Mecca. Despite being offered his freedom, Zayd insisted on continuing to live with Muhammad. As time passed on, Zayd's attachment to Muhammad grew. By the age of 30, Muhammad became more and more devoted to worship. In order to isolate himself from the many vices in Mecca, Muhammad decided to pray in the cave of Hira, two to three miles outside the city. 
When Muhammad turned 40, this would be approximately in the year 610, he received a vision in the form of verses. These verses were divine revelations that introduced a radical new idea to the Meccan world, monotheism. Muhammad told of his experience to Khadijah, who took him to her cousin, Baraka ibn Nafal, a Christian, who realized that Muhammad was a prophet. These moments were the foundations of a new religion, Islam. Muhammad would continue to receive revelations throughout the rest of his life that would introduce familiar aspects of Islam. Islam would soon gain its first converts, starting with Khadijah, Muhammad's ex-slave Zaid, now 30 years of age, and Muhammad's 11-year-old cousin Ali. Abu Bakr, Muhammad's friend from childhood, was out of town but declared his support for Muhammad when he had heard what happened. The majority of the first converts were slaves, young men, and hapless women, individuals from the lower echelons of society. Indeed, Muhammad's message was extremely uplifting. Slaves thought that their emancipation was near and women expected to have their rights restored. Not everyone was enthusiastic about Muhammad's message, however. The chiefs of Mecca viewed Muhammad as a threat to their power. Thus, they decided to put down this new movement by force. Women and men were slaughtered. Converted slaves were dragged over burning sands and stones. Even Muhammad himself was targeted. One day, when Muhammad was in prayer, a mob put a mantle around his neck and dragged him. But luckily, Muhammad was saved by Abu Bakr. On another occasion, a mob laid camel entrails on Muhammad's back while he was prostrate in prayer. They thought if they made the Muslims' lives a living hell, the Muslims would capitulate. Yet despite the cruelties inflicted against them, the Muslims remained steadfast. A couple side notes before I continue. First, since Mecca was ruled by the Quraysh tribe at the time, I'm going to be using the words Meccans and Quraysh interchangeably. For the purposes of this very general biography of Muhammad, they essentially mean the same thing. Also, you may ask, why didn't Muhammad's enemies simply kill him? Recall that Muhammad belonged to the Bani Hashim, one of the most powerful Meccan families. Under principles I discussed in the previous episode, killing Muhammad would have led to a blood feud with the Bani Hashim, which was not desired among the other Meccans. At this point, Muhammad would probably have been killed if he didn't have such powerful relatives. But the situation in Mecca was still untenable. The Muslims had only one logical option, emigration. But to where? Muhammad decided to send a small band of men and women west to Abyssinia, a land that did not persecute its people based on religious affiliations. Planning for this emigration was kept secret, and by the time the Meccans caught wind of this plan, the Muslims had already embarked across the Red Sea. A Muslim community would be founded in Abyssinia. Meanwhile in Mecca, the situation was becoming worse. The Quraysh instituted an all-out boycott against the Muslims. They would no longer buy from Muslims or sell products to Muslims. For three years, the boycott was in effect, but then, five prominent Meccans revolted and the boycott was annulled. Shortly afterwards, Khadijah died, followed by Abu Talib a month later. Muhammad had lost two faithful companions, yet the number of his followers was still increasing. The most famous person to convert at this period was Umar, who was the 40th person to do so. It's important to know that Muhammad grew especially close to 10 of his followers, who became known as the Blessed Ten. Muhammad soon found it impossible to appear public, since when he did, the Meccans threw dust at him and forced him back into his house. So he decided to take his preaching to Taif, a town 60 miles southeast of Mecca, noted for its food and agriculture. Taif had its own idols, but they were not as important as those of Mecca. In fact, Taif was a minor pilgrimage site. 
The inhabitants of Taif had blood ties with Meccans, and some Meccans owned swaths of green between Mecca and Taif. On arrival from Mecca, Muhammad was pelted with stones and driven out of Taif. Not exactly a warm welcome. Muhammad managed to re-enter Mecca thanks to the kindness of one Mutan ibn Adi, a Meccan chief. While Muhammad was looking for another suitable location, a 12-man delegation arrived from Yathrib. Yathrib was an oasis town north of Mecca and home to a diverse community mainly composed of two Arab tribes, the Khazraz and Aus, and three Jewish tribes, the Banu Koreza, Banu Nadir, and Banu Kenuka. The two Arab tribes had been at war and were now seeking peace. All they needed was an arbitrator. Having learned about Muhammad, they realized that he was the perfect guy for the job. In addition, they expressed their willingness to learn about Islam. So Muhammad ordered his followers to emigrate to Yathrib, later renamed Medina, meaning the city. As more and more Muslims were emigrating to Medina, the Meccans realized that they were losing their chance to suppress this movement. At last, only Muhammad, Abu Bakr, Ali, and a few slave converts remained in Mecca. In September 622, the Meccan chiefs assembled and decided to just forget about familial blood feuds and kill Muhammad, but the date they chose for their assassination attempt was coincidentally the same day in which Muhammad would escape. By the time the Meccan party arrived at Muhammad's house, they found Ali. But the Quraysh didn't come to assassinate Ali. Having failed to find Muhammad or Abu Bakr, the Quraysh searched Mecca and its outskirts, but were unsuccessful. Muhammad's and Abu Bakr's perilous journey from Mecca to Medina is called the Hijra. After escaping from Mecca, these two men were pursued by Meccan trackers, but managed to lose them by hiding in a cave called Thawr, three to four miles outside the city. They remained in the cave for two days, and on the third day, they continued towards Medina. The Quraysh offered a prize of 100 camels for Muhammad's or Abu Bakr's heads, enticing surrounding tribes to find the two men. One Bedouin chief, Saraka ibn Malik, spotted them and rode towards them, eager to claim his prize, but his horse kept throwing him off. Saraka realized that Muhammad and Abu Bakr were under divine protection. Having realized that Muhammad was the real deal, Saraka accepted Islam. He joined the party and safely escorted them to Medina just as the Medinans were growing impatient. Fortunately for the Muslims, the Medinans offered good hospitality, and within a few days of Muhammad's arrival, many of the Medinans started joining Islam. For the first time, Muslims were free to worship publicly. This marked the birth of the Islamic community, or Ummah. It's important to state here that two different types of Muslims emerged, the Muhajirun, or emigrants, who escaped from Mecca, and the Ansar, or helpers, who were recent Medinan converts who provided hospitality. Remember the Ansar and Muhajirun. They're going to come up in a future episode. After several months passed, the Meccans started making plans for attacking Medina. As a last-ditch effort to avoid combat, the Meccans sent a letter to the Medinan chiefs, asking them to hand over Muhammad. They refused. The Meccans invited the Medinans to take up arms against the Muslims. They refused. So war became inevitable. Muhammad made a pact between all Medinans, including non-Muslims, stating that all inhabitants of Medina would help each other. He established a reconnaissance network in order to determine Meccan preparations. Occasionally, Muslim scouts would skirmish with Meccan troops with indecisive results. As all this happened, Muhammad transformed Medinan society. Impartial judges were appointed to settle claims, those who were literate were asked to teach others to read and write, the rights of women were established, and the rich were required to pay for the needs of the poor. Hygiene and cleanliness became a public concern, and infrastructure such as roads was expanded. For the first time in living memory, the Medinans became civilized. 
Meanwhile, a caravan led by the Meccan chief Abu Sufyan was returning from Syria to Mecca, and under the pretext of protecting this caravan, the Meccans raised an army of about 1,000 men and took it to Medina. Having received revelations about the time and place to attack, Muhammad left Medina with 313 followers, though they were ill-equipped and inexperienced. The Muslims took a position at the Brook of Badr, thus cutting off the water supply from their opponents. The Battle of Badr was fought in March 624. Despite being outnumbered and undersupplied, the Muslims showed great courage and devotion throughout the battle. One incident proves this. The Muslim general Abdur Rahman bin Auf, having realized that there were only two men on his flanks, pointed at a Meccan chief named Abu Jal, who had emerged as one of the fiercest of Muhammad's opponents. Years before, Muhammad had beaten Abu Jal in a fight, leaving Abu Jal with a permanent scar and a burning hatred for Muhammad. To the Muslim general's astonishment, the two men charged and mortally wounded Abu Jal, though one of them lost an arm in the process. The Muslims scored a decisive victory at the Battle of Badr. Seventy Meccans were killed, and seventy more were made prisoners, in contrast to the mere fourteen Muslims that were killed. The Muslim victory was so complete that it was said that every prominent member of the Quraysh lost someone at Badr. Interestingly, Muhammad decided to set all of the captured prisoners free, ending the practice of making slaves out of prisoners of war. The battle also had an impact on the Meccan economy, as caravan routes to Syria and Palestine were no longer considered safe. Though the Meccan army fled after the Battle of Badr, they would be back. Next year, in March 625, the Meccans sent a 3,000-strong army led by Abu Sufyan. The Muslims held a council to determine if they should meet the enemy inside or outside Medina. Muhammad supported the former because attacking the Medinans' homes would provoke more aggression from the Medinans, but he was swayed out of it by many Medinans who did not fight at Badr and wanted to see some action. Muhammad would fight outside Medina, but prior to leaving, Muhammad received intelligence that the Jewish tribes were merely pretending to ally with the other tribes. So, suspecting treachery, he decided to expel the Jewish population of Medina. Unfortunately, this triggered 300 Muslims to desert, leaving Muhammad with a mere 700 men. The Muslims moved to the foot of Mount Uhud, four miles north of Medina, and deployed for battle. Over a narrow hilly pass, Muhammad posted 50 guards there with orders to repel any attack on the hill. Interestingly, the Muslims were facing Medina, meaning the Quraysh could have made a mad dash from Medina if they wanted, but they didn't. The Battle of Uhud, fought on March 22, 625, began when a member of the Quraysh named Abu Amir led an initial charge that was repelled by a shower of stones. Next, archers from both sides opened fire. The next phase was a series of one-on-one -on -one duels between champions of the two armies in which the Muslims killed most of their counterparts. Side note, many battles during the Islamic conquest had duels like these, in which the Muslims would win pretty much all of them every single time. This probably isn't the last time we're going to be talking about duels. Then, both armies engaged in full-scale combat, which the Muslims gained the upper hand. The Quraysh wavered and then broke in disorder. The Muslims pursued the Quraysh to the outskirts of their camp. But despite having their enemy on the run, the Muslims would not achieve victory this time. This time, the Quraysh had an ace up their sleeve in the form of Khalid ibn al-Walid, perhaps the greatest general you've never heard of. Remember those 50 guards that were stationed on the pass? Eager to loot the Quraysh camp, they abandoned their strategic positions, and Khalid noticed this. At just the right time, Khalid launched a mounted attack and took the pass. Khalid was now able to attack the rear of the Muslims, yet the Muslims, instead of fleeing, stood their ground. Now, Abu Sufyan had reorganized his infantry and returned to the battle. Caught between two forces, the Muslims were mown down. 
Even Muhammad was struck in the head with a stone and fell unconscious, making many Meccans believe that Muhammad was dead. Despite having the opportunity to finish off the Muslims, the Meccans decided to rejoice, perhaps squandering the opportunity to win the war. Still, 70 Muslims were killed during the Battle of Uhud, while only 22 Meccans were killed. The defeated Muslims gathered their wounded and dead and returned to Medina. For the next two years, there were no major incidents between Mecca and Medina, with the exception of the incident of Raji. In July 625, an Arab delegation came to Muhammad and informed him of their willingness to embrace Islam. They asked Muhammad to send some men who could explain the ways of Islam to their tribe. Muhammad agreed to send six men with the delegation back to their tribe, but when the party reached a place called Raji, the six Muslims were ambushed by warriors from the tribe that had invited them. All six Muslims were eventually killed. Abu Sufyan had challenged the Muslims to meet at Badr a year after the Battle of Uhud, and in April 626, a 1,500-strong Muslim army reached Badr, but the Quraysh were nowhere to be found. Little did the Muslims know that Abu Sufyan had an army of 2,000 men, but since a drought was present at the time, he realized he could not fight a battle in these conditions, and simply turned back to Becca. The Muslims remained at Badr for eight days, after which they realized that Abu Sufyan wasn't coming, so the Muslims returned to Medina without fighting a decisive battle. Remember those two Jewish tribes exiled from Medina? Well, they were starting to stir up trouble by inciting unrest among other Arab tribes. These tribes formed an army containing roughly 10,000 men. In contrast, Medina's entire population of able-bodied men was 3,000. The Quraysh provided the largest force, consisting of 4,000 men. Muhammad held a council to decide what to do, where one man, Salman the Persian, who was the first Persian convert to Islam, suggested digging a ditch around Medina and defend from the inside. One side of Medina was open plain, so Muhammad ordered a mile-long ditch to be dug there, while the rest of Medina was shielded by hills. On February 24th, 627, a confederation of Arab tribes converged on Medina, beginning the Battle of the Ditch. Despite being surrounded on all sides, the Muslims held their own. The trench prevented direct confrontation and neutralized enemy cavalry, so the confederation settled in for a siege. Sometimes, the enemy cleared the ditch, but they were quickly repelled. As the battle progressed, tensions grew within the confederation of Arab tribes. The Jewish tribes couldn't attack on some days due to the fact that they coincided with the Sabbath, and the weather was growing more harsh. Both sides were running low on food and supplies. On March 18th, a storm ravaged the area around Medina, and the temperature plummeted. Since the confederation's camp was more exposed than the Muslims' camp, they were affected more. Abu Sufyan realized that he was making no progress, so he retreated to Mecca with the Quraysh 23 days after the start of the siege. Having conceded, the confederation lost the Battle of the Ditch, and Medina was spared. The Battle of the Ditch was a turning point in this war because the pagan tribes stopped going on the offensive. From now on, the Muslims would be on the offensive. No matter how hard they tried, the Arab tribes could not eradicate Islam. They began to suspect that Muhammad was right and they were wrong. Yet the Muslims were still not in an advantageous enough position to sue for peace. Late in February 628, Muhammad and 1,500 pilgrims marched towards Mecca, along with 20 scouts to alert them of enemy troop movements. Muhammad received reports that the Meccans had put on tiger skins, an indication of their willingness to fight. But Muhammad saw no need for fighting. The pilgrims advanced to Hudaybiyah, where Muhammad's camel refused to keep moving, a sign that they should travel no further. The Meccan army was, in fact, not even in the city, meaning Muhammad could have taken Mecca with little resistance. But Muhammad didn't come here for conquest. He came here to perform pilgrimage. Muhammad sent an envoy, Uthman, yes, 
that Uthman, to the Quraysh in order to negotiate. But Uthman was taking a long time, and rumors spread that Uthman was murdered, so the Muslims made the Pledge of the Tree. When the pledge was taken, Muhammad was sitting under a tree. They promised that if Uthman was murdered, they would never go back. However, Uthman returned with a compromise that was finalized in the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. The treaty stated that there would be peace for 10 years, anyone who wanted to join the Muslims or Quraysh could do so freely, and the Muslims would be allowed into Mecca starting next year. It was at this point when prominent Meccans such as Khalid ibn al-Walid and Amr ibn al-As realized the persistence of the Islamic faith and decided to become converts. After returning to Medina, Muhammad thought of another way to spread Islam. He sent letters to various leaders inviting them to convert to Islam. The letter meant for Byzantine Emperor Heraclius was received by his courtiers, who tore up the letter and threw it away. The letter meant for Sassanid Shah Khosrow II did reach its intended recipient, but the Shah tore the letter to pieces. When the letter meant for the Nagus, that's like a king, of Abyssinia reached him, the leader decided to keep it in a special box. The Nagus decided that he wasn't going to convert to Islam, but he wasn't going to try to stamp out the new religion. The directions of the later Islamic conquests were related to how foreign rulers treated these letters. I suspect that this anecdote was invented after the conquests in order to justify them, but that's just me. The Jewish tribes realized that the Arab tribes were unable to withstand the rising tide of Islam, so they turned to the Christian tribes who settled along the Byzantine Empire's southern border. At the same time, they convinced Khosrow II to order the Sassanid governor of Yemen to arrest Muhammad. However, the plot to arrest Muhammad was found out, and in an unrelated event, Khosrow was soon murdered, as described in the previous episode. In fact, Muhammad had predicted Khosrow's assassination, and the people of Yemen became so impressed that the entire province of Yemen became integrated into the Islamic fold. Still, the Jewish intrigues threatened the Muslims' safety, which was a problem that had to be dealt with. Sometime in August 628, Muhammad marched to the Jewish stronghold at Kabar with 1,600 men. Kabar was a well-fortified town a short distance from Medina, and capturing it seemed like no easy task. But Muhammad received a revelation that Kabar would fall at the hands of Ali. Muhammad put Ali in charge, and by nightfall, Kabar fell to the Muslims. Because the Jews had broken their previous agreement, they were forced to settle far away from Medina, and their property was confiscated. By February 629, a year had passed since the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, meaning that it was time the Muslims returned to Mecca. Muhammad gathered 2,000 pilgrims and set out for Mecca. Seven years after they had been exiled, they returned in peace. After circling the Kaaba, they stayed in Mecca for three days. On the fourth day, the Meccans asked the Muslims to leave, which they did. At this point, both Khalid ibn al-Walid and Amr ibn al-As, two generals who used to fight against the Muslims, joined the Muslims. On return from the Kaaba, Muhammad began to receive reports that the Christian tribes near the Syrian border were massing for an attack on Medina. He sent 15 scouts to determine if these reports were true, but unfortunately, all of them were murdered. They died fighting to their last breath. In a last effort to avert war, Muhammad sent a letter either to Emperor Heraclius or the chief of the Ghassan tribe complaining about the unjust murder, but Muhammad's envoy was executed on the orders of a local Ghassan chief in the city of Muta. This was the last straw. Muhammad raised an army of 3,000 and sent it to Muta under the command of Zaid, Muhammad's ex-slave. Should Zaid perish, Jafar ibn Abi Talib would assume command. And should Jafar perish, Abdallah ibn Rawaha would assume command. And should Abdallah perish, 
the Muslims would choose their next commander. This extremely lengthy chain of command would be a sign of things to come. The Battle of Mutah, fought in September 629, would be the first battle between Muslims and Christians and would take the Muslims further from Medina than ever before. There are reports that the Christians had 200,000 men, but that number must have been obviously inflated. Still, the Muslims were outnumbered, but they fought their hardest. Soon, Zaid was slain, followed by Jafar ibn Abi Talib, followed by Abdallah ibn Rawaha. But there was no time to hold an election for the next commander. Accepting the suggestion of a friend, Khalid ibn al-Walid, the mastermind behind the Meccan victory at Uhud, took command, and the Muslims fought until the evening. The next day, Khalid employed a clever trick. Those in front would change with those in the rear, and those on the right flank would change with those in the left. The Muslims fought so well that the enemy thought the Muslims received reinforcements overnight, so the enemy withdrew. Although the Battle of Mutah was a loss for the Muslims, Khalid's ingenious tactics saved the Muslim army from destruction, and it would be because of his actions at Mutah that Muhammad would call him the Sword of Allah. In December 629, Muhammad would prepare for his final and largest expedition that would permanently establish Islam as the main religion of Arabia. The Treaty of Hudaybiyah was still in effect, but since two opposing tribes, the Banu Bakr and Kuza'ah, attacked each other, Muhammad had a reason to consider the treaty null and void. On January 1st, 630, Muhammad led an army of 10,000 towards Mecca. They advanced rapidly, hoping to catch the Quraysh off guard. Muhammad hoped that there would be no bloodshed, but there were a few casualties. On January 11th, the Muslims entered Mecca, ending the war between the Muslims and Meccans. Immediately, Muhammad headed straight for the Kaaba and circled it seven times. Then, he destroyed every idol, one by one. It had been seven years since Islam's founder fled Mecca as a fugitive. Now, Islam had won out over paganism, and even the Meccan chiefs who originally opposed Muhammad, such as Abu Sufyan, now embraced Islam. Yet hostilities within Arabia would still continue. The fall of Mecca provoked southern Arabian tribes to go to war against the Muslims. Muhammad raised an army composed of 2,000 recent Meccan converts and the 10,000 Muslims who originally conquered Mecca and marched to Hunayn, a narrow valley east-northeast of Mecca. Before dawn on February 1st, 630, the Muslims marched to Autas, located within the valley where they expected to find the enemy. But that was what the enemy's leader, Malik ibn Af, wanted them to think. Suddenly, the enemy tribes launched an ambush on Muhammad's army. The Meccans, and even some half-hearted Muslims, fled back to their camp. Yet Muhammad and his most loyal companions stood firm. Muhammad called the remaining Muslims to rally around him, and as soon as enough Muslims returned to the battlefield, Muhammad ordered a counterattack. Malik lost control of the valley, and his army was virtually disintegrated. The Battle of Hunayn was another decisive Muslim victory. The enemy coalition lost 70 men, in contrast to the mere four Muslims that were lost. Muslim casualties were extremely low due to the ineffectiveness of the enemy archers, in case you were wondering. By September or October 630, Muhammad raised another army to confront the Syrians that had defeated the Muslims earlier at Mutah. He hoped to meet them in battle but only reached as far as Dabuk, where not much happened. The Syrians had retreated to Damascus. The only significant battle was at Damat al-Jandal in late November 630, which ended in a Muslim victory. Muhammad succeeded in gaining a few converts, but after being deprived of food and supplies, he had to turn back. 
Good news awaited him when he returned to Medina, though. The people of Taif, who belonged to the same confederation as the tribes who were routed at Hunain, had submitted. Soon, all of the tribes of Arabia would apply for admission to Islam during 631, the so-called Year of Delegations. Nine years after the Hijra, Muhammad undertook one last pilgrimage to Mecca, where he received a revelation that his work was complete. Realizing that his end was near, Muhammad delivered one last address, known as the Farewell Address. Soon, he fell ill. Muhammad continued to visit mosques and lead prayers until he was too weak to do those. His condition became worse and worse until, on June 8th, 632, he passed away in the company of his final wife, Aisha, and his closest companions. The impressive rise of Islam from just a mere cult to a major religion in the span of only a few years was masterminded by Muhammad. Muhammad ushered in a period of unification in which the newly created Islamic faith transcended tribal affiliations and brought hope to the hopeless. But problems would surface following Muhammad's death, especially the question of succession. After all, who was worthy of being Muhammad's successor? Well, that will have to wait for the next episode.